Welcome back to Final Girl Friday. My name is Molly, and I like scary movies. Tonight, we're taking a look at a surprisingly lesser-known twisted fairy tale, Toby Hooper's The Fun House, from 1981. You will scream with terror. You will beg for release. But there will be no escape. For there is no release. Some regard it as a classic. Others, like your host, managed to somehow go 40 years without ever even having heard about it. Either way, much like most of the movies we talk about here on the show, it seems from a distance like a sleazy slasher movie. But when you look a little closer, you find there is so much more going on. We'll look at the Funhouse's story, production, and reception. Then we'll be joined by my dear friend Deuce to talk about why the Funhouse means so much to him. Before we can dive into it, though, I do have a couple of quick points of interest. For decades, I have been saying I wish Mr. Catonic University were an actual thing, and I learned recently that it kind of is. Founded in 2010, the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies is an international organization that offers undergraduate-level history, theory, and production-based masterclasses. It currently has three branches in London, LA, and New York. There was a location in Montreal as well, but it's currently on an indefinite hiatus, apparently. They offer online classes, too, and the whole organization is run predominantly by volunteers. On the school's website, author Kim Newman says, It's not enough to know we're scared. We need to understand how and why and what being scared means. The Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies is an initiation into an understanding of horror, which is, in the end, a key to an understanding of everything. I feel like this is starting to sound like an ad. This is not an ad. I'm just really fucking excited to learn that it exists. Miskatonic Institute recently announced its class schedule for their spring semester. The online classes, which are not geo-blocked, so they're available worldwide, they start in February. And the classes include Leave or Remain, The Spectre of Brexit in Modern Britain, British horror films, party horror cinema, the queerness of erotic thrillers, and the one that I'm personally most excited about, I Want to Bleed for You, Body Horror as an Act of Devotion. Admission can be purchased on a class-by-class basis. I think it's $10 for video on demand or $12 for live stream. And a full pass for the spring semester is available for $40 until February 7th. I don't think Jeffrey Combs has taught a masterclass through Miskatonic yet, so there's always room for improvement, but it just seems, it seems like such a cool organization and I'm really excited to get in there and check it out. Moving on to trailers, we have a couple of really awesome trailers that came out recently. The first being Renfield, which tells the story of Dracula's lowly assistant falling in love with a traffic cop and finally starting to question his role in the world and his relationship to his master. It stars Nicholas Holt as the titular Renfield, Aquafina, Brandon Scott Jones, and, of course, Nicholas Cage as Dracula. Some call me the Dark One. Others, the Lord of Death. To most, I am Dracula. Okay, obviously we're dealing with a little bit more than just narcissism here. The first thing I think most of us heard about Renfield was that Nicolas Cage would be playing Dracula in it, and that was intriguing enough, but actually seeing the trailer, it looks like it's going to be 
just such an all-around good time. I'm a big fan of Nicholas Holt. He was my favorite thing about Fury Road and incredibly memorable in films like Warm Bodies and About a Boy. I feel like this is going to be the most fun Renfield we've had since Tom Waits. And I can't even begin to do justice to how fabulous Nicolas Cage looks. Just if you haven't seen the trailer yet, I highly recommend checking it out, along with Evil Dead Rise. I won't go too deep into just how much I love the Red Band trailer for Evil Dead Rise because I just did an hour-long live stream on Instagram with Jeff of the Nerd Trek Movie Club reacting to the trailer, mutually freaking out about how amazing it is. So I don't want to make you guys sit through that again if you've already heard it, but what I will say is I do typically fall on the side of letting go of some of these classic franchises, being able to say goodbye and move on to other things, lest we run them into the ground, but that doesn't seem to be the case for me with Evil Dead. I am so excited about this movie, and I personally hope it kickstarts a long line of original stories set in this universe. Mom? Mommy's with the maggots now. Speaking of Evil Dead, and for a little recommended reading, over at Collider, Daniel Deschen dives into the forbidden knowledge trope with his article, Evil Dead Rise, The Necronomicon and Seven Other Iconic Fictional Books That Should Really Stay Shut. This list includes the novels of Sutter Kane from In the Mouth of Madness, which, by the way, is a movie we'll be talking about next month, Mr. Babadook from you know, the Babadook, and even the Manual of Witchcraft and Alchemy from Hocus Pocus. It's a really fun list that could act as a good curation tool for an evil book movie marathon. I believe I have made a significant find in the Kandarian runes, a volume of ancient Sumerian burial practices and funerary incantations. It is entitled Naturan de Manto, roughly translated Book of the Dead. All right, I think that's all I've got for tonight. If you're new to this podcast and you don't hate it, stay tuned until the end of this episode for information on Final Girl Friday elsewhere. And as usual, if you haven't seen The Fun House from 1981, proceed with caution. There will be many spoilers ahead. Right, let's talk about The Fun House. Directed by Toby Hooper, written by Larry Block, and released by Universal Pictures in March of 1981. It stars Elizabeth Barrage as our final girl, Amy, Cooper Huckabee as her date, Buzz, Wayne Doba as Gunther, aka The Monster, and Kevin Conway as no less than three carnival barkers. Somehow I managed to go nearly 40 years without ever even having heard of this movie. I just found out about it last year, and I felt like a terrible horror fan. I couldn't understand how I could have missed it. But when I sat down to research it, I realized pretty quickly that I'm not alone. He suggested I do The Fun House, which is a movie I barely even have heard of. I really wanted to check out The Fun House. I remember seeing this one around for a very long time and uh, never, never saw it. I really didn't watch it in completion until probably about a year and a half, two years ago. I'll be perfectly honest, I have had never really entered the world of Toby Hooper's The Fun House prior to this video. Why exactly this film has been overlooked by so many horror fans, I can't say, but I imagine it has at least something to do with its slow pace and unusual fusion of genres. As I mentioned earlier, from a distance, The Fun House seems like another somewhat trashy slasher movie from the early 80s. But it's actually more of a monster movie wrapped in the blanket of the slasher subgenre and paced like a noir. 
It does have a lot of the signature slasher elements, like an opening scene that's almost parodying the shower scene from Psycho, and it tells the story of a small group of young people on a double date at a carnival who decide on a dare to sneak and spend the night at the fairgrounds. Over the course of the night, they're all hunted and killed, leaving only Amy to fight for her life against a masked psychopath. But in the midst of all this, the kids also witness a murder and commit petty theft, which ups the stakes of their escape once things start to go sideways. And the other half of the story is that of the killer himself, of Gunther. He's the deformed and abused son of one of the Barkers, who spends the majority of the movie just looking for love and finding it nowhere. He hires the carnival's fortune teller, Zena, for some sexual healing... I'm sorry I said it like that, but finishes early, after which she refuses to refund his money, and Gunther kills her in what I interpret as a fit of childlike, embarrassed rage. When his father finds out that he's killed one of their own, he freaks out, <laughs> get it? Freaks out. <clears throat> and starts formulating a plan to cover the murder up and blame it on the locals. The kids, who've witnessed all this, steal the cash from the Barker's little safe box. Well, one of them does, Richie. They're not all complicit in the theft of the Barker's money, but, you know, once he steals it, there's no going back. They then realize they're locked in and can't run away. Before long, the Barker figures out that there are some townies skulking around, so he orders Gunther to find and kill them. It ain't as if I'm asking you to do something you ain't never done before. The whole third act of The Fun House definitely feels like a kill-by-numbers movie, but the acts that precede it... Like I said, they're paced much more like a noir or a thriller with a lot of warped family drama. And Gunther is a bit more sympathetic than killers like Michael or Jason. He also kills with his bare hands and occasionally uh, found objects from within the funhouse, so our main killer isn't using bladed weapons at all. It basically feels like Toby Hooper wanted to make a monster movie, but Universal wanted to cash in on the popularity of Friday the 13th, and so yeah, this is what we got. And I don't mean to be so hung up on where this movie falls on the horror spectrum, but I do feel it's especially important in this case because in my experience, expectation is the key to enjoying the funhouse. If you go into it expecting like a killer clown situation, as the poster art would suggest, or the more formulaic slasher that the opening scene kind of promises, you may be confused and a little disappointed. I know I was. When I first saw this film, none of the expectations I had going into it were met, and it took a few more viewings for me to shake off those expectations and appreciate the movie for the anomalous hidden gem that it is. One of the best things about the funhouse for me are the characters, more specifically Amy and Buzz. Because things move at a snail's pace through most of the first and second acts, they were able to take their time not just establishing but evolving the relationship between the main characters in a way that we just so rarely get to see. At the start of the story, Amy's father forbids her from going to the carnival, explaining that the same carnival passed through a different town the year prior and that some kids were killed there. So when she meets up with Buzz for their very first date, she tries to convince him to take her someplace else. She does put forth some effort to obey her father's wishes. And then he just sort of makes fun of her dad and pressures her to stick with their original plans in kind of a schmoozy way. This irritates her and makes him feel incredibly awkward. And it's pretty clear that as first dates go, this isn't the best. Look, I don't think they're hitting it off very well. Do they have a fight or something? Of course they're hitting it off. Buzz is a terrific guy. You know, Richie, 
Roger Stone. Charles Manson's a terrific guy. But once they get to the fairgrounds, Buzz insists that they talk things out and apologizes to her, which breaks the ice a little bit. And from there, we see their affection for one another grow the more time they spend at the carnival. Every time we cut to them on a new ride, for example, they're sitting a little closer, laughing a little more. And when he wins her a panda bear, she clings to that thing pretty much for the rest of the film. By the time Gunther starts picking them off, I have fallen completely in love with Buzz, I'm shipping the hell out of this couple, and I am heartbroken when he goes down swinging, literally protecting her with his life. And I just don't think that their relationship or his death would have had nearly the same impact if we had just spent 10 minutes on them at the start and then thrown them right into the chaos. The slow crawl that is most of the funhouse really turned out an awesome kind of horror power couple. I also really enjoy Richie, played by Miles Chapin. Ch Chapin? Chopin? The friend who steals the money. He's sort of your typical sidekick, class clown type. And Madame Zena, the fortune teller, played by the incredible Sylvia Miles from Murder, Inc. and The Sentinel. She cracks me up in this because she is just so bitter and grumpy. And when Gunther hires her for sex, she's like screeching at him to take his clothes off and calm down. She's like the least sexy prostitute imaginable, just in the way that she behaves. Lie down! What are you standing there like an idiot for? Nothing to be afraid of. You really get the impression that Xena has lived a long and disappointing life and has just run out of patience with the world. I would love to see a prequel to this that's just all about Xena and how she wound up working for this carnival. Kevin Conway's Barkers are also very memorable, of course. I have no idea why he insisted on playing three separate characters, but he did. In fact, it was the only reason he agreed to be in the movie. And it worked out well, because it's stupidly charming. And and Gunther, although Wayne Doba is behind either a mask or a prosthetic the entire time, he did a wonderful job of conveying Gunther's childlike mindset through body language, which isn't surprising, because Doba was primarily a dancer and a mime prior to appearing in this. So yeah, I think the characters were very well cast and, for the most part, very well written. If I had to pick a favorite, though, it would have to be Daisy May, the two-headed cow, because she is fucking precious. That cow's name is actually Daisy May, by the way, and she was a part of this traveling sideshow act from South Florida, and she toured around... Uh, carnivals for like 27 years or something. She was one of the biggest attractions on the Midway at the Miami-Dade Youth Fair in 1968, and there were over 80,000 people that showed up to look at her. She lived a very long life for a cow with that particular deformity, and apparently her owners were very kind to her, and that also makes me really happy. <laughs> but I digress. A lot of attention was paid to the carnival setting and set design of the funhouse as well. Hooper said in an interview once that one of his favorite movies growing up was Nightmare Alley from 1947, which again explains the pacing. And there's even a deformed baby in a big jar at one point, which I believe is a direct reference to Nightmare Alley. He said he saw a lot of promise in the setting and embraced the opportunity to bring his own memories and experiences as a kid to life on the screen. No detail was spared when it came to capturing the stark reality of cheap traveling carnivals. It's loud, crowded, everything looks a little overused and weather-worn, and once we get inside the funhouse, the fun never stops. Stop that right now! Huh? 
There are so many props and animatronics crammed into the place, your eye just wants to go everywhere all at once. Mort Rabinowitz, the production designer, and Tom Call, the set director, did such a bang-up job creating an immersive funhouse atmosphere. And every time I watch the movie, I spot a few new things in the background that I hadn't noticed before. The funhouse is a dark ride as well, which I found interesting because all the funhouses I've been to were walkthrough experiences, so I feel cheated, but... That's neither here nor there. The special effects makeup is also very impressive, particularly the design of Gunther. The whole concept of Gunther is just neat. You know, he's wearing this Frankenstein's monster mask most of the time. We rarely see his face. But when his father orders him to hurt himself as punishment for what happened, and also I think to kind of rev him up to kill the townie kids, the mask comes off and we see that what's underneath is even more grotesque than the mask he was hiding under. Gunther's face was designed by the man, the myth, the legend, Rick Baker, who, among many other things, was the SFX makeup designer for Videodrome, which I just realized I've never really talked about here on the show, but it's the movie from which I stole my namesake and is visually one of my favorite movies ever made. And Gunther's design is truly disgusting. It's hard to look at it directly in a good way. He's always drooling excessively and his face is sort of split down the middle in a way. He has red eyes and his skin is this slimy, almost fishy kind of brown gray color. It's gross and lovely. Rick Baker was actually going to play Gunther as well, but then Toby Hooper saw Wayne Doba performing as a mime and decided to go with him instead, which is good because Doba was great, but I think it would have been just as fun if it had been Rick Baker. The kills are pretty standard fare, though. You've got a couple of strangulations, some noose action. I think the most memorable kill, I mean, apart from Gunther's death, which is very memorable, I think the most memorable kill is it's kind of a combo, like a two-for-one situation, where the Barker, who has at this point decided to help Gunther kill the kids, he's impaled on a sword that's sticking out from the ride. And as Buzz is trying to fight him off, the Barker pulls him onto the sword as well. As sad as Buzz's death makes me, it's a it's very theatrical and a lot of fun to watch. The best moment in the film for me, though, in terms of the deaths, is the reveal of Richie's body and his girlfriend, Liz's reaction to it. Richie was pulled up into the rafters by a noose and disappears for a minute. Then the doors to one of the tunnels open and in rolls Richie's body on a dark ride cart, noose still wrapped around his neck, but now there's also an axe sticking out of the back of his head. Liz runs screaming after him with her hair whipping all over the place. And oh my God, the lighting during that whole scene. This movie has some really great lighting effects. I don't know if I've really done justice to just how crazy things go in the third act of this movie. They, they really go nuts. It's well worth the wait. If, like me, you tried watching The Fun House and you, you couldn't quite get into it your first time through, I highly recommend watching it again, even if you have a hard time investing in everything leading up to the chaos at the end. You know, I know that it moves at a very slow pace. It's worth it, I think, to get to that chaos. You're not going to know when or where, but I'm going to get you so bad you're never going to forget it! I also forgot to mention that alongside the two main stories, there's a separate story going on with Amy's little brother, Joey. He's like seven or eight years old or something. He pranks Amy at the very beginning of the film, and she gets really mad at him and vows revenge. Then he sneaks out of the house and kind of follows the kids around the carnival. Some people fuck with him, he winds up in the care of the carnies, and eventually his parents come to pick him up. The whole thing with Joey, and I'm sure Deuce and I will touch down on this, but the whole thing with Joey feels unnecessary and out of place to me. I don't really get the point of Joey. 
I mean, him being there does allow for the scene where Amy sees her parents at the fairgrounds and cries out to them through a fan in the funhouse. And of course, they don't see or hear her, so they just take Joey and go. And that does add an additional layer of stress to Amy's situation, but it's not actually that impactful or frightening a moment, in my opinion. The character, though, played by Sean Carson, his inclusion in the film was so important to Hooper that he moved the entire production from California to Florida and shot the film there because of the more lax child labor laws. And Hooper regarded Joey as a principal character, so, I mean, they really wanted him there, which is fine. I just, I don't fully get why? Other than that, though, after watching the film a handful of times in recent months, I really have no major complaints. It didn't grab me right away. It took some time for me to warm up to it, but once I understood what kind of movie I was watching, I got a lot out of it. It's disturbing and artfully made with excellent cinematography by Andrew Laszlo and a great orchestral score by John Beale. It features a cast of interesting characters that raise a lot of fun questions, and it really nails the gritty, homespun realism of transient carnival life, capping it off with some good old-fashioned chaotic violence. They are authentic and they are alive. Alive, alive, alive. A few more potentially fun facts before we get Deuce in here. The Funhouse was shot on a budget of somewhere between two and three million dollars, and it didn't quite break even its opening weekend, but it did eventually pull around eight million. It was also classified as a video nasty in what most people deem a misunderstanding, like a mix-up with The Last House on Dead End Street from 1973 which was alternately titled The Fun House. It's definitely hard to believe this movie was intentionally classified as a video nasty. It just, it really doesn't fit the bill. There's also a novelization of The Fun House written by none other than Dean Koontz under the name Owen West. It was released before the movie due to a delay in post-production, and because of this, a lot of people believe that the movie is based on the book, but the book is actually based on the movie. Lastly, prior to researching for this, I was not aware that Toby Hooper directed the music video for Billy Idol's Dancing With Myself, which I guess means that Dancing With Myself was the first thing I ever saw by Toby Hooper, which is fucking weird. <laughs> and a lot of the props you see in that video were props used in the funhouse. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and when I come back, we'll be talking with Deuce about his experiences growing up with the Funhouse, since I didn't get to, so I'm really looking forward to living vicariously through him. Stop! Please! Why are you doing this? Why are you trying to kill me? Hold on. I am so glad that you asked. I'm trying to kill you because I love your podcast, but it takes you weeks, sometimes months, to upload new content. Wait, really? You like the show? Yeah. But if you kill me, I won't be able to post anything at all. Don't do that. Just pledge to my Patreon. You have a Patreon? Yeah, I do. Well, I kind of sank all my money into this whole murder plan, so... Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Masks aren't cheap. The, the lowest tier is only a dollar. Well, that's a pretty sweet deal. Right? And, and, the, and the more patrons I have, the more freedom I'll have to focus on creating new episodes of Final Girl Friday. Which means more regular uploads. Yes! See, you don't need to kill me. Just go to patreon.com slash Final Girl Friday. Okay, but... 
We came all the way out here, and I have put a lot of work into this, so... I'm still gonna kill you. Uh, are you freaking kidding me? I'll be sure to check out the Patreon once you're dead! Oh, that makes no sense! Deuce! Hi, Molly. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited that I have finally dragged you onto Final Girl Friday. <laughs> it, you know, we drag a lot of bodies around this world, but I'm glad that mine got dragged into doing the podcast. <laughs> finally, you asked me. It has been a really long time coming, and I'm so, I'm just so happy to have you here. How, how are you? I am so good, and you know, it's so funny because when you sent me the Funhouse as my, my. What's the word I'm looking for? Homework assignment? <laughs> Your mission? I was so... My mission? I was so excited and so not excited because <laughs> this is one of those seminal movies for me that I probably haven't seen this movie in 25 years <laughs> because when I was a kid, this movie scared the living shit out of me. Really? And I was so afraid to go back and I was like... Okay, this is time to finally face your fears and go back into the fun house. So here we are. Oh my god. Wow. <laughs> That's great. For those of you who are not familiar with him, Deuce is one of my dear friends uh, and also an incredibly talented filmmaker who I'm sure is going to make a face that he wished that I wasn't complimenting him because that's, you know, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Incredibly talented filmmaker. He was, among many other things, the director of a short horror film called Lilith that uh, I was in for a couple minutes. Once a Broken Cowboy. And you're currently working on a film. Oh, God, you just you just told me. So it was formerly Night Moves, but now it's known as In the Path of Shadows. Is that correct? In the Path of Shadows, yeah. What a great title. Can you talk about that a little bit? Do you want to talk about your what you're working yeah, on? Yeah, so In the Path of Shadows is the feature film debut, as it were, that Ooh. I'm trying to get off the ground. Uh, we're hoping to shoot sometime next year. Uh, we're just looking for money right now. It's Most of it's been cast. The script's in place. We've got, you know, locations are getting scouted. And it's just trying to get the, the people that want to see a new goofy werewolf movie out in the world. Oh, yeah. I'm one of those people. Give it to I'm them. I'm definitely so. one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's one of those. It's funny because we made the, the proof of concept short that's gone to multiple festivals now it's won a couple of awards and hell yeah God. so yeah if anybody wants to see it they can reach out and i'll send it to them so i am so excited for you so incredibly talented one of the kindest people i've ever known and you are also available on the slasher app is that correct on slasher i'm on instagram i'm on tiktok Sometimes I'm on Twitter, even though I have checked it like once a year. I'm still technically there. <laughs> Absolutely same. My Twitter has been gathering dust for a long time, but it does still exist. Yeah. All right. Well, so so you say that this is a seminal film for you. How old were you when you saw The Fun House for the first time? Yeah, I can't pinpoint the exact age, but I know it was early on. I was probably five or six is my thoughts. And I know, like, it's one of those... I have that visceral memory of being a little kid and they were doing like one of those HBO free weekend type things yeah. and the you know, middle of the night, because I was always a kid, I never slept. I don't sleep now, but like <laughs> even as a little kid, I didn't sleep. And I remember I like snuck downstairs. We didn't have stairs, but I can pretend for the story. It makes it better. <laughs> snuck downstairs. Turned on the TV, just had it just loud enough so that I could hear it without waking anybody else in the house up. And 
I don't even think... I mean, it was before TV Guide was, like, our way of seeing things. We didn't have DVRs or anything, so it was just whatever was on was on. And I turned this movie on, not any clue of what it was. From minute one, I was so enthralled. And I'm just like, I don't know what I'm watching, but it feels forbidden somehow. <laughs> yeah. And I remember getting through it and not being able to sleep for at least a week. But it was so funny because it wasn't until I rewatched it that the second they go through the gates into the fun house, and the actual dark ride stuff begins. I'm like, oh, this is the movie that is the reason I don't do dark rides. I don't do haunted houses. <laughs> I, I hate all of this stuff. Like, when they're going through those doors in the movie, I my heart started racing, and I started to get cold sweats, and I'm like, oh, this oh is what God. it is. Now I remember. That's amazing. Yeah, That's because, amazing. Like, yeah, all my friends make fun of me, because they're like, you know, in my 20s and 30s, they'd be like, okay, it's Halloween, <laughs> we're going to a fun house, and I'm not going. They're like, you love horror, you make horror movies, but you won't do haunted houses. I'm like, no, I, I hate haunted houses more than anything. And I now know it's because of this movie. So thank you. Wow. You are welcome, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy I could dredge up all that trauma for you. That's so funny. I... This is what an intense film to watch at right. at that age. I mean, even as an adult, because I, I we talked about this before we started recording. I actually just saw this film for the first time a couple of months ago. Somehow it just whizzed right past me through the majority of my life. And um, even as an adult who has been watching almost exclusively horror movies for like 15 plus years, there were some moments that were disturbing to me, and I could only imagine being a little kid yeah. how that would leave scars. Obviously. <laughs> yeah. God, what a... Well, and especially like with uh, with things like the design of the monster, there is such a grotesque, timeless grotesque quality to oh, yeah. that character design that is still hard to look at today. And uh, yeah, I can just picture little five-year-old you just being <laughs> traumatized for life. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because, like, I watched all the other staples growing up, too. Like, I watched your Michael Myers. I watched your Freddy Krueger. I watched Jason Voorhees. But, you know, I think that was always the thing was it was like, when am I going to be at a lake? When am I going to be dreaming and have a demon come after me in my dreams? Like, with this, it was like, oh, the dark is the thing to be afraid of. And the dark is everywhere. <laughs> yeah. You're in a dark, yeah. unfamiliar space, and there's a monster chasing you. Yeah, that's a thing that could happen. <laughs> God, that's so true. Well, and, you know, also with with a film like The Fun House, when you compare it to other films like Friday the 13th and Halloween, I think that there is a sort of raw kind of everyday life quality because of the pacing of The Fun House. And, you know, just with Toby Hooper yeah. and his style, he, he, it's, especially for a young kid, it might have felt, I would imagine less like a movie and more like you're you're literally just watching people live their lives in a way that would have created a much more visceral experience than watching some of those other earlier, you know, other films around that well, you time. Know, and that was rewatching it this time. That was the thing that I took away the most was I was sitting here like, I love that they don't even get to the fun house until almost halfway into the movie. Because yep. you're just living with these people. You're just getting to know them as friends, having a good time, hanging out, just being kids. And I'm like, oh yeah, I see a lot of me and my friends at that age of these people. 
So that oh, yeah. when the terror begins, it's like, oh no, I can definitely see myself in this situation. Yeah, there's a whole there's a whole relationship arc that happens in this movie prior to any of the horror actually happening with Amy, you know, yeah. and it's like you're being given a lot of time to get to know these people in a way that as much as we got that with Halloween, we did. We spent a lot of time getting to know Annie and Linda and their relationship mm -hmm. to Lori. And so we felt the weight of their deaths. And um, and we had that a lot of that in Friday the 13th, too. But it feels like in comparison to The Fun House, it moves at a breakneck speed, those other films do. Yeah. The Fun House really takes its time. <laughs> and you know, it was so interesting because now being able to watch this with an adult lens and having seen so many horror movies... Mm -hmm. And really understanding Toby Hoop as a director, I could see how he was kind of, they were trying to box him in. Because mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm like, I just sit here, I'm like, this is Texas Chainsaw at the carnival. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's a group of kids, like, invading this space that is unfamiliar to them. There's a monster inside that's trying to kill them. But that is kind of sympathetic at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. like, and we have a fucked up family. You know, you've got that up fucked family. up family dynamic that Hooper loves. You know? Yeah, and I was just like, I'm glad he was able to step away from this and do other things. Because, like, if this was a more successful movie, I could just see them being like, well, they do Texas Chainsaw in space and in a swamp <laughs> and everywhere else you can do it. No, I, I completely agree. There there are the similarities, the parallels between this and, and Texas Chainsaw are, are a little staggering at times. And, and that was one of the reasons why I was so shocked that it took me so long to even hear about this movie. I didn't even hear about it. I was planning to talk about haunt horror for Halloween. Rory heard about that, gave me a copy of The Fun House, and I'm like, what is this? And he's like, you've never heard of The Fun House? This is Toby Hooper's carnival horror movie. I'm like, never, not once. I'd never come across a review of it. Ne nobody had ever brought it up to me. And so the whole time that I'm watching it, I'm, I, it's interesting. I would like to have seen it when I was less familiar with Hooper as a director, I would like to have seen this as a kid. There is this, you know, it's, it's terrifying, but it's hard to watch it without divorcing myself from Hooper and from Texas Chainsaw now, just because of who I am and how old I am now and what well, I've seen. And this movie is one of those two that it is not done any favors by being so of its time because mm -hmm. it is a very slow, methodical, paced out movie and I was sitting there watching and I'm like nothing happens for yeah. 45 minutes <laughs> and I know most audiences now would be like make something happen anything god just <laughs> let anything happen and I'm sitting there going I love how slow this is I love yeah. <laughs> that they're not trying to make it like out of the realm of real life it felt real because mm -hmm. in our lives nothing exciting happens until that moment something exciting happens. That's what I love about it, is that it felt so much more real than so many horrors that are made today. Mm -hmm. No, it's so true. And the payoff from that, I, I have noticed, I feel like we are starting to kind of come back to the realization that when you do those sort of windows into everyday life, take your time getting to the action, to the horror, the payoff is massive. And like with the Funhouse specifically, the scene with uh, Largo Woodruff, with Liz, when she's cornered by the monster, that scene is one of the most action-packed scenes in the film. And having waited so long for something to happen and then to have that scene be the thing that happens. Well, and I'll tell you, that was one of those scenes that if you had asked me a year ago, having not seen this movie in 20 years, I would have been like, there's a scene 
where a girl is cornered by a giant fan and the monster is slowly coming after her. And there's this almost strobe-like effect and it just keeps going and going. And in my head, that scene ends in this brutal massacre. And in true Hooper fashion, there's no violence on screen. No, nope, none on it. screen. I'm like, it's yep. so uncomfortable <laughs> And I'm not seeing anything. And that's mm-hmm. so much more powerful to me. Yeah, that's one of the things that I took away most from from this movie while watching it for the first time was just how disturbed I was by it, but how little brutality we actually saw. You know, and it's, it's not a movie that's lacking mm-hmm. in horror. It's just you don't really see a lot of the actual brutality. You don't need it. You don't need the brutality. They are amping up all other, all the psychological aspect of the horror is so visceral in this film that you don't need the gore, you know? No, and it's interesting because I I don't know if you looked into the book at all. I'm aware of the book, but I haven't actually read it or anything, you know? It is so fascinating because I haven't read the book. I, I need to now after reading the synopsis, but the the book is so much more insane and goes into all this backstory that I'm like, oh, that was all in the movie, but you just didn't give it to us. Essentially right. about how Amy's mother was Gunther's mother as well and used to be in like married to the carnival barker guy. What? What? <laughs> and she was this religious fanatic who was trying to bring about the essentially like the new Christ and that Gunther was the antichrist to her and she tried to kill him and what like the went fuck? off married yeah married the father had Amy and then when Amy comes back Gunther somehow recognizes her as family oh my god and I'm just like excuse me where is all of this in the movie I For want real. This. Like, seriously, that, wow, I, I had never heard any of that. That is, yeah. oh, that's yeah. insane. <laughs> and that's why I, I well, and it's interesting, because I was sitting here, and I'm like, why has this movie never been remade, and remade with all of the book information in it? Like, yeah. It feels so just ripe to be redone, and you've got this, like, book as well that seems so interesting. Yeah, you know, I'm not normally in favor of remaking movies, but in this case, I have to agree with you. I think that I would love to see, maybe not looking at it as a remake, but more, I would love to see a new adaptation of that novelization. You know, especially knowing if the novelization had a a rich foundation from that original script, I would love to see a new version of that film with all that content, with all that additional stuff that because that would be so exciting (laughs) oh yeah because i was sitting there the whole time i'm like something is going on with the mother i don't know what you're not telling me but like there feels like there's a big character there she's kind of just plays like a drunk but that's it and i'm just sitting here i'm like there's so much more there there are layers to this onion that we're not exploring Mm -hmm. you know speaking on that subject speaking of characters who would you say is the most interesting character to you in the funhouse like who's your favorite character (sighs) you know i really as as bizarre as it is the funeral or the the carnival barker i mean other than there's three of him which doesn't make a lick of sense but (laughs) i was just like I feel like there's this genuine love for Gunther, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, just that, like, dirty, disgusted, like, when he's sitting there, like, don't call me father, that's not who I am. It's like, 
but you still care about him. Like, Mm -hmm. I love those fucked up family dynamics, you know, it's, and, and there's a lot of allusions to it, but you know, it's the Frankenstein thing where it's like, you're the creator, but also kind of ashamed of your creation. Oh man. Oh, I hadn't thought about it like that. That's exactly what it's like. I mean, it really mm-hmm. is. He he may not have built Gunther from scratch, but yeah, I mean, he Gunther is his child. He created him. He loves him and hates him at the same time, you yeah. know. And uh God, that's so funny. I mean, obviously you have you have the the glaring comparison to Frankenstein right there in the movie because when we first yeah. see Gunther, he's wearing the Frankenstein mask, but for some reason <laughs> The more poetic parallel just went right over my head. I don't know why the fuck. Um, that's crazy. <laughs> well, as you can tell, like Gunther is simple. He's a child. Like he doesn't understand the ramifications of his actions, whereas the carnival barker does. And mm-hmm. like when he tells him to go after the kids, and you know, he's just like, you know, I'm not asking you to do something you've never done before. <laughs> it's like, right. Gunther doesn't quite understand what he's doing, but when he does it, he gets punished. But now he's being asked to do it by his father, so he doesn't want to go against it. Mm-hmm. Which is incredibly yeah. confusing for him, for sure. And, and yeah, it again, you know, not to create another line between this and Texas Chainsaw, but you do have that sense from the Barker because yes, he has a lot of hatred and a lot of uh, loathing. He's irritated with Gunther a lot, but he also has that, that weird warped sense of loyalty. And it, yeah. it, it goes back to the saw is family kind of thing where it's like, you know, you don't kill one of your own. You don't kill anybody who works at the carnival. If you're going to kill people outside the carnival, that's fine. You can do exactly. it. Exactly. Just don't kill one of us, you know? And, and when he finds out that Gunther has killed the fortune teller, he's pissed at him, but he does everything he can to make it right and to protect him. And I love that Kevin Conway played three different characters in this film. It's so, it's completely unnecessary, but it makes for this really fun, there's a theatrical quality to that. It kind of creates an almost stage presence for his character. Were they alluding to the fact that it was, he was supposed to be separate people in the movie, right? Well, I read that he would only do the movie if he got to play all of the carnival characters. And I was just like, why? (laughs) And then like, the more it kind of like, I thought about it, I was like, Oh, you know, it really makes sense, though, because if this is, like, a carnival family, they have probably, they're probably all Mm -hmm. brothers. Like, they probably all are actually family. (laughs) And so it kind of makes sense in a twisted way that it's, like, different versions of him. Mm -hmm. But, like, I think they could have done a little bit more to make it not look exactly (laughs) like him three times over. I love it. And I can't get enough of that. I would have been happy if he'd played like four more characters. Like if he had just played a good six or seven characters in the film, I would have been happy. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so what would you say now, watching it now as an adult, what would you say is the most disturbing moment in the film to you? Is it the the scene with Liz cornered by the fan or has, has that changed? Uh, that was definitely probably still the part that got to me the most, but like, it's, it's so sad because it really, it is as they enter the funhouse for the first time and all these stupid animatronics are like laughing at them and moving that stuff sent a chill down my spine. And it's like, I know how cheesy it is. I know like nobody in the world would be afraid of this funhouse except me. <laughs> 
But, you know, there's that part where they're standing around <laughs> and the skeleton pops out and then the one guy gets pulled up by the oh, noose. Yeah. And I was like, that was such a good jump scare. <laughs> yeah. Because he's just telling this random story that has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> and I'm like, for a jump scare to get me at this point that I don't see coming, mm-hmm. like, never happens. So the fact that I, like, didn't remember that happening and didn't, like see it coming I was so excited about Mm. that but as far as the parts that like actually got to me Liz and the fans still I was just like this is uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and like the fact she starts to turn it on him and be like you like girls and he's just like oh like he's in a way he was waiting for consent from her like it's not like he was going in there and just like I'm a sex fiend Mm -hmm. like she offered it and put it on the table and he's like Oh, okay. Like, if you're okay with this. God, and when she, when she, when he hugs her. Yeah. When he hugs her, I think was really what fucked me up the most about that scene. Because you know she has to hurt him. She has to try to get away oh, yeah. from him. Like, we're, we're with her. We want her to get away. But that, you know that he's just trying to find some kind of intimacy. And the only intimacy we've seen him have at this point was with a very abrasive older woman who was scolding him the entire time. And it was also an embarrassing situation for him to boot. So here's a girl that's probably a little closer to his age. And he doesn't fully understand how terrified she is because, you know, obviously his perspective is skewed. And that hug, man, that hug just, it gutted me. And it's one of those where it's it's with... You know, the fortune teller, like, she lays it on the table. It's like, I only want you if you're going to pay me for it. And here's this younger girl that's like, no, I just, I want to be with you. I want to, like, I'm okay with this. And he's just like, oh, she likes me for me. (laughs) You know, (laughs) in a childistic brain, like, that Mm. makes all the sense in the world to him. And it's so sad. It is. It's so tragic. Well, so, do you have a favorite kill? Oh, you know, I I love the fortune teller kill. I think yeah. it's so good. Yeah. But I think that, you know, the dude getting, Richie getting pulled up with the noose and then coming around in the cart and getting the axe to the head, like... Oh, my God. Wow, yeah. That was <laughs> so good, because it's like... I know he's already dead, mm-hmm. but can I pretend he wasn't dead? Yeah, no, and it it felt like the the, the wheelchair kill in Friday Three yeah. it, in the in the sense that it's like, is it really necessary to go this far with this death? Like, <laughs> it's a gift that keeps on giving. The Richie's kill in this movie, uh, machete to the face, staircase backwards. Oh. Yeah. I think Hooper knew how much people were going to love Richie. So they're like, let's just kill him a little extra. Let's just. Right? (laughs) And then it's followed by that beautiful, beautiful shot of the camera mounted to the car. Yeah. Center. And you're seeing Liz running after him. And I'm just like, this is such an amazing shot. This is so good. Oh, yeah. It, there are so many beautiful shots in the film. Like, it it really is a very visually interesting film. Oh, yeah. You know, even when you have these very long periods of time where not a lot is happening, there's a lot to look at. And I love that. That's that's how any carnival horror movie should be. Oh, yeah. No, it was... it was. There were shots in there that I was just like, this shouldn't be this well shot for being right? this, like, not 
bad because it's not a bad movie, but it's, you know, a 1980s horror movie. It's, no one's sitting there going, oh, the cinematography and the fun house. That's what I strive for in my career. <laughs> it's true. I was really impressed. Like it, the first time that I watched it, it didn't grab me right away the way Texas Chainsaw did. You know, I didn't have an immediate connection with the film. And mm-hmm. as I told you at the start of this conversation, um, I'm still kind of formulating my thoughts on the movie. I don't, I still, there are certain things that I'm not, I've only seen it a couple of times. I'm very new to it. And I'm still kind of figuring out how I feel about it. But one of the things that really stood out to me most about it was that it doesn't have the art house feel of Texas Chainsaw consistently from start to finish. But there are whisperings of the mm-hmm. art house in it. And a lot of that does come down to the visual style, to the pacing, to that that slice of life and the sort of uncomfortable nature of the story. All of that kind of culminates to make a movie that really feels a lot more artful than it should. Yeah. It's also one of those few movies that you get really weird pedophile undertones at certain parts. And I'm just like, Oh yeah. The whole story with the kid with Amy's brother. What is going on with that? (laughs) What is going on? I don't understand that part of the story, but at all. (laughs) I don't understand why they brought him in. I don't understand why he keeps showing up randomly to get assaulted by a grown man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't get it. I, I, Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I, the only conclusion I can draw is that he was trying to kind of be like, yeah, there's danger in the fun house, but there's also danger outside of the fun house as well. Like, I think that's as good a theory as any. I kind of looked at it more as like when you go to the dentist, there's always a poster somewhere that you're supposed to focus on. So you're no, you don't pay attention to the pain. You're just like looking at the poster of the ducks in the water. And it's like, you know, life will go on or whatever the fuck kind of phrase it says. And, um, and so that way distracts you from the pain. I kind of looked at that kid as like that weird poster that you're su- I'm supposed to be focusing on. We kind of keep cutting back to it <laughs> to give us a break from what's going on in the rest of the film. Yeah. But I actually like your theory better. I think that that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> I don't know. I'm grasping at straws for that one, but <laughs> just like, I don't know why he's here. I don't know yeah. why some random man would pull up and be like, you want to ride? And then pull out a shotgun. Like, so bizarre. Who knows? I don't know. So bizarre but you know and again going going back once again going back to the texas chainsaw thing you know although it wasn't as prevalent in the that first film it was definitely something that was explored and expanded upon as as texas chainsaw grew um but that whole concept of like everybody in the town kind of knowing about it being in on it that the danger doesn't stop when you leave the sawyer home yeah and maybe that maybe that was also kind of part like you said what they were what he was going for was just that sense of like, well, yeah, I mean, in the fun house, shit's fucked up, but it's fucked up outside of there, too. <laughs> yeah. I'll read the book and I'll let you know what the brother storyline has to do with anything. Maybe we could start a little mini book club We could and we could start there with the fun go. house novelization because I would really love to read that as well. <laughs> Final girl book club. Hell yeah. I would love that. <laughs> oh, man. Well, so... God, thank you so much for talking with me about this. It helps me kind of see it from the perspective of a five-year-old kid, for fuck's sake, watching this way sooner than anyone should. <laughs> and how terrifying how terrifying it must have been. And, and, and just try to put myself in that mindset when I'm watching it and say, what would it have been like to watch this as a child, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For me, it was interesting, too, though, is just like seeing how it... Not only, like, put these lifelong traumas in my head, but really cemented 
my form of storytelling because I'm like, yeah, this is not fast paced. Like it takes a while, but like even just them hanging out, having not deep conversations, I'm caring more and more about these characters. And that's what I do with my movies. I'm like, people think that like the things I make can be a little slow paced. And I'm like, yeah, that's for a very specific reason. And now I know it's because the fun house did it to me. (laughs) I'm glad I watched it again. I'm so glad that you gave me an excuse to dip my toe back into those terrifying waters and (laughs) understand where my trauma comes from. I'm still not going to set foot in an actual like haunted house or fun house anytime soon, but you know, I think my biggest takeaway was just, I miss the days when the characters are what drove the movies. I miss the days when we could just spend 45 minutes with these kids Walking around this carnival, seeing the freak show, seeing the Peep Tom show, just being kids, smoking pot, making bad choices, and then immediately getting punished for them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that the last thing you really have to say about the fun house is alive, 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 <laughs> alive, 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 alive. alive. <laughs> Because God knows he is hearing those words a billion times in my head. Yep. I want to thank Deuce for hanging out tonight and sharing some of his thoughts and memories of growing up on the Funhouse. Be sure to check him out, look him up on social media for news regarding In the Path of Shadows and any other future projects. And if you're interested in seeing Lilith, I believe it's available on YouTube. His YouTube channel is Taylor S. Deuce. To anyone out there listening, how do you feel about the Funhouse? Did you grow up on this movie like Deuce or were you more like me and painfully oblivious to it for an embarrassingly long amount of time? If you have any thoughts at all you'd like to share on the film, I would love to hear them. Please feel free to reach out to me. You can find me on the Slasher app. My username is Final Girl Friday, Instagram at Molly Oblivion, or if you prefer old school correspondence, you can email me at finalgirlconfessions at gmail.com. Before we wrap up tonight, it's time for this week's worst case scenario. Give me a worst case scenario and make it grim. This week's question is, you're trapped at a carnival with a psycho killer. Where do you hide? Or how do you fight? Red Monkey said, I'd go for the squeaky whack-a-mole mallet. I'd die, but I'd die giggling. (laughs) We definitely don't see enough death by squeaky toy in the movies. I'm sure there had to have been at least one squeaky death in Stitches, but like nothing else is coming to mind. Of Death said, I would probably hide somewhere where there was plenty of carnival food to snack on. Plus, I could find some weapons in the kitchen, and if the killer finds me, I can hit them over the head with a thing and drown them in the fryer. Probably have a nice pun ready. Thank God it's fry day. I enjoy that pun on two levels, because it works really well here, but it's also kind of a Bob Belcher quote. Bob's Burgers conveniently located on Ocean Avenue, open Monday through Friday, also Saturday and Sunday. And yeah, I think weaponizing carnival foods is a really good tactic. And so did Shamatari Dobby 85 set up base in the food cart with all the knives and boiling grease fires as weapons. 
Fantastic. Monkey Bucket says, dress like a mime and hang out in the Hall of Mirrors. I love this answer. I think that's one of the craftiest things you could do. I feel like it would be incredibly effective. And we've seen it in movies a lot. We've seen people use the Hall of Mirrors to disorient killers and or their victims. And it, it just, it works like nine out of 10 times. So yeah, Hall of Mirrors is where it's at. Movie Man says, I'd find the nearest booth that has something sharp. And the second that psycho is nearby, stabby, stabby, kill, kill. I love your enthusiasm. Ms. Traubarella says, why the top of the Ferris wheel, of course. Same. That's actually my answer. <laughs> I would be absolutely useless in a physical confrontation with a killer. So my answer is usually just to hide until the trouble goes away. And I can think of no better place to hide than the very top of the Ferris wheel. Just hunker down. And, and pray for daylight. Jerry Dandridge said, I would gather the clowns. An army of clowns will scare the shit out of them. Hell yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think it would really throw the killer off their game. I don't, I don't think they would expect a clown revolt. It would be perfectly disarming. Come on, you, you still bust out crying whenever you see Ronald McDonald on the television. At least I'm not afraid of flying. Planes crash. And apparently clowns kill. Chango22 says, I would lead the killer into the mirror maze. When the killer is inside, I would make sure the entrance and exits are locked, then fill the room with water so the killer can watch themselves drown. Once their body is floating lifelessly, I would empty a bucket of piranhas into the room and devour the killer's flesh. I don't need the killer coming back to life Voorhees style. John, remind me never to piss you off. <laughs> Jeff the Nerd says, go to the ring toss where you have to get it on a bottle. Endless supply of glass bottles to throw or stab with. Very crafty. It's a very crafty answer. Skid Blodnir says, hide in plain sight in front of the dunking booth. Let the guy above the water be a hate magnet. If the guy is working with a barker, it would cost me fives of dollars to let me cover his break and direct slash deflect the psycho's rage. <laughs> Once again, Skid, I think you've won most creative and definitely uh, the most fun way to throw someone under the bus. Jeremy says, I'd go find a test of strength mallet and try my best to defend myself. That was how my favorite character in Hellfest went, actually. His head was smashed by a giant strongman mallet and it was brutal and highly entertaining. Lastly, the community favorite, Gory Rory says, not to fear. I'd just go on a never-ending roller coaster ride with Mark Wahlberg. He'd protect me. <laughs> Some have to your problems. All of them. I know you abandoned Nicole when she needed you most. Because I licked her sweet tears. Chongo22 replied, but would you let Marky Mark get to third base? To which Rory said, if he's saving my life, the least I owe him is my funky bunch. <laughs> Thanks so much for hanging out with me tonight, guys. Final Girl Friday is hosted by me, Molly Oblivion, edited by Jonathan Bradley, and scored by Gory Rory. Huge thanks to my creepy janitors, Chad and Deuce, for hanging in there with me last year on Patreon. I know I took a very long hiatus, but we're back, and I've had a lot of fun getting back into it, posting new content over there. I'll be back in two weeks on February 3rd with my friend Bruce, talking about In the Mouth of Madness, which I hadn't seen in a very long time, and it scared the ever-living shit out of me. In the meantime, stay safe, stay sane, stay alive, 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 and as usual, creep it real. Oh my god, my back just cracked. Are you okay? Did you break something? <laughs> yeah, just dropped a remote. When you did that, was at the same second my back cracked, so it sounded like... <laughs> oh my god, what did I do? Yeah. I thought maybe I'd severed my spinal cord, so glad that I didn't. <laughs> See, I was just trying to add fully for your life. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I know I appreciate that.